Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you are an ASHP member, you will also have the opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this episode. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast for more information. My name is Dave Zimmerman, and I'm an Associate Professor of Pharmacy at Duquesne University. And I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Stephanie Whiteman, a Clinical Pharmacist Educator at UWorld and Rx Prep, and Connor Stewart, who is an Emergency Medicine Pharmacist at Children's Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. In this episode, we will be discussing unattended consequences of the opioid epidemic on pediatric pain management. Welcome, everyone. So, Stephanie, let me turn it over to you first. A lot of doom and gloom out there with the opioid epidemic, obviously. When we're focusing on the pediatric world, what are some of the unintended consequences that have occurred? Thank you, Dave, for the introduction. So just as a starting point, I'll go ahead and introduce myself. I'm Stephanie Waitman. Like Dave said, I'm a clinical pharmacist educator at UWorld in Dallas, Texas. I attended the University of Houston College of Pharmacy and completed my residency training at Children's Medical Center in Dallas as well. Prior to my current position, I worked as a clinical pharmacist in the emergency department at Children's Medical Center for over 11 years. And I think just to kind of answer your question before you let Connor introduce himself, pediatrics has been shielded from a lot of some of the things that you see in the news when it comes to the adult version of the opioid epidemic. But with that shielding came some unintended consequences that maybe the adult practice population is not as familiar with. And that's kind of some of the things that we're going to try and delve into today. With that, I'll let Connor introduce himself before we dive in. Thank you for that. So hi, everyone. My name is Connor Stewart. I'm a clinical pharmacist in the emergency department at Children's Medical Center Dallas. I graduated from the University of Tennessee College of Pharmacy. And then I completed my PGY-1 and PGY-2 pediatric residency training at Le Bonheur Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. And a little bit over a year ago, started working at Children's Medical Center Dallas. All right, so let's go ahead and dive in. I would like to preface this at first by saying that today we'll be focusing on acute pain management in the pediatric patient. Chronic pain, as well as pediatric-specific topics like those involving pain medications related to neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, Will have to be a topic for another day. Also, when we're speaking about pediatric patients today, we're focusing on patients born at term with an age greater than one month and up to 18 years. But we'll elaborate on that more as we move forward. We also want to emphasize that we are not against any of the regulations or changes that have been made to help all patients. Our goal is to highlight how some of these changes have affected care within the pediatric setting. Our objectives today are to discuss the impacts and safety implications of opioid regulations on acute pediatric pain management. We will also examine creating an appropriate pharmacologic acute pain regimen for the pediatric patient. The opioid epidemic, it's a dynamic, multi-layered situation with regulatory changes affecting patients and providers in a variety of ways. Historically, pain remains undertreated in the pediatric population, and this is something that maybe not everyone is aware of. Causes include an adequate or regular assessment of pain due to limitations of self-reporting, which could be due to age or verbal status of the patient, unfamiliarity with the appropriate method to assess pain based on age, and over-focusing on the source of pain instead of trying to adequately treat the pain in the moment. Treating pain in children is super important because it can lead to faster recoveries and fewer complications. Untreated pain can potentially result in long-term physical and psychological consequences, including chronic pain in adulthood. Although many regulatory changes were designed with the best of intentions, 
unintended consequences have surfaced in acute pain management for the pediatric population. In October 2014, this is kind of where a lot of the changes started that helped some of the unintended consequences manifest. So back in October 2014, the DEA changed the schedule for hydrocodone combination products from Schedule 3 to Schedule 2. Hydrocodone combination products were widely used opioid options for acute pain management in children. At the time, certain states, including Texas, required Schedule 2 medications to be prescribed on a specially designated paper prescription, oftentimes referred to as triplicates, and I may be dating myself by using that term. This required providers to order separate prescription pads in order to continue to prescribe Schedule II medications, now including hydrocodone. In Texas, the State Board of Pharmacy took over management of this program in 2016 and ultimately changed the specially designated paper prescription in 2018, again requiring providers to order new prescription pads. Each time, this served as a potential deterrent in a provider's workflow to prescribe hydrocodone or other Schedule II opioids like oxycodone for acute pain management. It just simply was much easier to prescribe Schedule III to Schedule V medications with this new requirement. Changes were also observed in the prescribing trends of opioids immediately after the rescheduling of hydrocodone. A study of 14 hospital-affiliated pharmacies examined narcotic prescription information for the three months immediately before and after the rescheduling. Each medication studied was also converted to morphine equivalents, and the total quantity of morphine equivalents dispensed in this period was also evaluated. While there was a 58% reduction in Norco 5325 tablets and a 34% reduction in Norco 10325 tablets, the number of tramadol prescriptions increased 17%, Tylenol number 3, or acetaminophen with codeine, increased almost 600%, and there was over a thousand percent increase in the number of Tylenol 4 prescriptions. When looking at the morphine equivalents, there was only a 3% reduction in equivalents dispensed after the federal rescheduling. Although this study focused on tablet formulations, potentially limiting pediatric applicability for those younger patients unable to take tablets, pediatric spans a large spectrum of patient ages, including older patients like adolescents. This substantial increase in prescribing of products containing codeine and tramadol is a huge red flag for pediatric pharmacists. Codeine and subsequently tramadol has a decorated history in the pediatric population. And we'll take a quick trip down memory lane. In 2012, prior to the hydrocodone rescheduling, the FDA announced that it was reviewing cases of pediatric deaths related to codeine use after a tonsillectomy and or adenoidectomy. In 2013, the FDA issued a box warning and contraindication that strongly recommended against the use of codeine in post-operative pain management in children following a tonsillectomy and or adenoidectomy. This further supported continued hydrocodone or oxycodone use for pediatric acute pain management, but the Schedule II status made it that much more difficult to prescribe them. This in part explains a substantial increase in the use of non-Schedule II products like codeine and tramadol. In 2015, the FDA issued a safety warning about off-label use of tramadol in children aged 17 years and younger. Although not approved for use in children, Data showed, especially after the hydrocodone rescheduling that occurred the previous year, that there was indeed an increased off-label use of tramadol in the pediatric pain management. More and more reports were surfacing of pediatric ultra-rapid metabolizers that were able to convert tramadol and codeine to active metabolites in quicker and in larger quantities, leading to respiratory depression and death. This occurred with accurately dosed regimens. It was not related to incorrect doses or too frequent administration, which is what sometimes people were attributing it to. While inappropriate coding and tramadol use first drew attention after tonsillectomies and or adenoidectomies, the FDA issued another safety announcement in 2017 requiring more label changes for codeine and tramadol products. A new contraindication for tramadol was added to avoid use in all children younger than 12 years old. Tramadol also gained the same contraindication as codeine, 
to avoid all use in postoperative management in children younger than 18 years following a tonsillectomy and or adenoidectomy. Coding contraindications were added that recommended against coding use to treat pain or cough in children younger than 12 years old. Of note, the FDA subsequently issued an additional warning the following year in 2018 that raised the age to avoid coding use specifically for cough in patients under 18 years of age. An additional warning was also added to both codeine and tramadol to avoid the use of both agents in adolescents between the ages of 12 and 18 years who have additional risk factors, including things like hypoventilation, which would be more often seen in a postoperative status, obstructive sleep apnea, obesity, severe pulmonary disease, and neuromuscular disease. As pharmacogenomics has become more mainstream, Knowledge has increased about the prevalence of CYP2D6 polymorphisms that lead to the ultra-rapid metabolizer status. However, it's still pretty difficult to determine who this precisely affects, especially in an acute care setting. In practice, as prescribing challenges mounted, there was a common misperception among some providers that just a few doses would be okay for acute pain management in a child. I can recall multiple instances when a provider wanted to give a test dose of acetaminophen with codeine thinking they could then send the patient home with a prescription after nothing really bad happened, not understanding that it generally wasn't just one dose that was causing the respiratory depression and potential death. This was, and still is, a huge opportunity for pharmacists to provide education about the implications of codeine or tramadol use and the strong FDA warnings against their use in the pediatric setting. January 2021 brought changes to how controlled substances are prescribed. At the federal level, a law that requires electronic prescribing or e-scribing of controlled substances in the Medicare Part D prescription program went into effect. However, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is currently delaying enforcement until 2023 to allow for additional time for compliance. I'll be honest, in pediatrics, we're relatively unaffected by Medicare Part D prescription programs by virtue of the age of the patient. At the same time, though, in January 2021, a state law in Texas went into effect that required all controlled substances must be e-scribed, regardless of the patient's age or program. Just for historical context, this was effectively in the middle of winter while dealing with COVID surges and staffing issues. Much of the information to providers and those involved was lost amidst other messaging related to the pandemic and current healthcare challenges. This state law does provide waivers and exceptions for e-scribing controlled substances, such as controlled substances prescribed by a vet or research protocols or technology issues. But what this really looked like in the actual life was that community pharmacies, especially those large chains, would not accept any controlled substance prescription under any circumstance unless it was e-scribed. How this affected the hospital setting and other acute care settings was that it severely restricted the providers able to prescribe controlled substances, especially in the beginning while many were trying to get approval for e-scribing privileges. My former institution, residents were not allowed to e-scribe any controlled substance. Only attendings could e-scribe them using a two-factor verification process. This led to two significant consequences. First, time to discharge within the emergency department was delayed because the provider needed to verify within the electronic health record that the correct pharmacy was entered and open, especially after hours, and then additionally waiting for an attending to be available to e-scribe. Second, and perhaps most important, with the additional steps to e-scribe added to an already overwhelmed workflow, sometimes providers, including those outside of the emergency department setting, opted not to prescribe controlled substances for acute pain management when it otherwise would have been totally appropriate. This led to instances of inadequate pain control, sometimes necessitating a return visit to the emergency department. Pediatric patients are more sensitive to changes in hydration and nutritional status. Inappropriately treated pain can lead to an increased risk for dehydration and its sequelae. As we love to say that children are not little adults in pediatrics, it holds true that a child's pain is very different from the adult experience. 
Different emotional and psychological factors, including caregiver's presence, can affect a child's pain comprehension and simulate his or her response. The pain pathway is also different in children. The number of nociceptors, which are the starting point of the pain pathway, per one square meter of body surface is higher in a child compared to an adult. The amount of neuromodulators is also higher, meaning a higher sensitivity to pain in childhood. The signal of pain is more intense and lasts longer in children compared to adults. Undertreated pain in pediatric patients also leads to hospital-related stress and negative memories associated with medical settings that can adversely affect future interactions. Unaddressed pain raises anxiety and fear, which in turn can increase the perception of pain for a pediatric patient. The ability to obtain opioids for pediatric pain management has also been affected in the community setting. As regulations have evolved, community pharmacies have experienced pressure regarding opioid ordering and have often changed their controlled substance inventories. Liquid formulations have become increasingly difficult to find at many community pharmacies, especially those not located within a major metroplex. This provides an additional layer of challenges, especially when taking into account the use of e-scribing. Once a new prescription for an opioid is e-scribed to a pharmacy, it can't be transferred if that pharmacy doesn't have the medication in stock. If the pharmacy is unable to order or obtain the opioid, a new prescription must be e-scribed to a different pharmacy. So now we're back to finding an attending or a provider, depending on the healthcare setting, that it's time to send in a new controlled substance prescription for a patient he or she potentially did not evaluate initially, or ultimately, the patient's unable to obtain the prescription for acute pain management. This is an extreme burden in an acute care setting, like an emergency department, and leads to a huge delay in care and appropriate pain management. But it is an issue that continually shows up with the limited liquid formulations being stocked now by community pharmacies. There's been many changes to how opioids are prescribed as we navigate the opioid epidemic. While these changes are made to protect all patients, it's important to acknowledge the pediatric population's experience. Pediatric pain is often underestimated and undertreated, and additional legislative actions inadvertently further promoted this, especially in settings where general practitioners and not pediatric specialists provided care. Some of the most affected pediatric patients are those with acute orthopedic injuries, trauma-related injuries, sickle cell patients with acute pain crises, and post-operative settings. With that, I'll turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Connor Stewart. Thank you, Stephanie, for that very thorough and illuminating discussion on the history and the legislation changes kind of surrounding the opioid epidemic and how it's affected our treatment of acute pain in pediatric patients. So I'd just like to take some time to discuss a few of our treatment options for acute pain and in which patients they might be appropriate to utilize those. So Stephanie mentioned some of our most affected pediatric patients are those with acute orthopedic injuries and trauma-related injuries. So when I encounter these patients in the emergency department, they often arrive without established IV access and experiencing extreme pain that has been untreated up to that point. So in those situations, intranasal fentanyl becomes a very appealing option once the primary survey has been completed and the treatment team deems that it is safe to administer intranasal pain medication. So Lexicomp lists the dosing at 1.5 to 2 micrograms per kilogram with a maximum dose of 100 micrograms and the option to repeat that dose 10 to 20 minutes later. So this is a great option for these patients because it does allow for really quick delivery, just using a syringe and attaching an atomizer to deliver that. You get rapid onset within about 5 to 10 minutes and it treats their pain while the team is working on establishing IV access to provide more conventional pain control as well as any other necessary medications and fluids. But it is important to keep in mind, however, that most of our patients will find that intranasal delivery to be really uncomfortable. They'll often squirm around during that intranasal delivery, and that can sometimes mean that that full dose doesn't get administered. So for example, in a 50 kilogram patient, your full dose of 100 micrograms equates to two milliliters. 
using our standard 100 microgram into a milliliter vials. And that's a significant volume to deliver intranasally. Additionally, some of these children seem to always have little noses full of snot and little boogers, which obviously prevents the fentanyl from absorbing across the mucous membranes. So for these reasons, I actually recommend against using intranasal route in patients who already have established IV access. And this has been a really great opportunity for pharmacist intervention in the emergency department, just by providing education to the providers about our limitations of using intranasal fentanyl and some of the reasons why we should avoid using intranasal medications in patients with working IV access. So in these patients, it's much more prudent to deliver pain medications intravenously. Two great options are gonna be IV fentanyl and IV morphine. Hydromorphone is another good option, but at least in my practice, we typically reach for fentanyl or morphine first. So for IV fentanyl, your dosing varies based on patient age, but in general, using one microgram per kilogram with a maximum starting dose of 50 micrograms will provide safe and effective analgesia. We can also repeat that dose in 30 to 60 minutes as needed because that's about the amount of time that we can expect the fentanyl to provide analgesia. And if a longer duration of action is needed, then morphine then becomes a more appealing option. But in my practice, there have been times that fentanyl is avoided due to parental concerns. So thanks to this opioid epidemic and illegitimate fentanyl becoming more prevalent in communities causing overdose and even death, some parents get pretty skittish when they hear the word fentanyl being used in discussion to treat their child's pain. So in these situations, I just find it important and helpful to provide education to the parents on the benefits of using fentanyl to treat their child's pain, and that we can safely and appropriately dose a fentanyl that's made by a manufacturer with federal oversight and strict regulations. And sometimes this discussion is enough for them to support using fentanyl in the acute setting, but there have been times when parents still refuse any fentanyl use on their child, which we have to respect. So in these cases, morphine then becomes an acceptable option for both the caregivers and the providers. So as with fentanyl, IV morphine dosing varies based on the patient's age, but in general, dosing it at 0.05 to 0.2 milligrams per kilogram is appropriate starting dose. In my practice, I usually default to using around 0.1 milligrams per kilogram, and I max doses at four milligrams unless a patient has a known opioid tolerance and requires higher doses. And this is a case with some of our patients with sickle cell disease that have frequent pain crises. Morphine does come with the benefit of a longer duration of action, about three to five hours, but it's important to use it cautiously in hypotensive patients because it can cause hemodynamic changes that can worsen hypotension. And it's also common for patients to feel nauseous after receiving morphine. So sometimes it does become necessary to administer medications such as ondansetron or something to help with nausea and vomiting. But another interesting treatment option that I encounter a lot in the ER for acute pain is diazepam. Some of our patients present with displaced femur fractures and a large component of that pain in these patients is actually caused by frequent muscle spasms in the leg from that displaced femur fracture. So diazepam can be really helpful in decreasing those muscle spasm and it can still be used in combination with other pain medications if these patients are experiencing extreme pain following a displaced femur fracture. But this is another great area for pharmacist intervention because a treatment team doesn't always consider using a benzodiazepine to help with muscle spasms in these types of orthopedic injuries. And although Lexicomp doesn't give dosing specific to this indication, in general, using 0.05 to 0.1 milligram per kilo, usually with a max starting dose of five milligrams for IV diazepam, helps provide safe and effective management of muscle spasms in displaced fractures, most often femur fractures. But then moving on from that, aside from using intravenous and intranasal medications, it's also important to remember that when appropriate to use oral medications. So oral NSAIDs like ibuprofen are still very important 
and actually have shown huge benefit in musculoskeletal pain, sometimes even being more beneficial than opioids. And then also just using oral acetaminophen, at least, you know, once we've moved on from that initial phase, when those patients first present to the emergency department. And Stephanie, I know you worked in the same emergency department for many years. So, you know, you can also speak to that if you have anything to add, but it is a really interesting point, you know, how the landscape has kind of evolved with the opioid epidemic and the challenges that it has posed to us practicing in the emergency department, trying to treat pain in these pediatric patients. Well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Stephanie and Connor for a great topic and discussion on, you know, really how the opioid epidemic has hit our pediatric colleagues. I know at my practice site, we don't see too many peds, but it's nice for me to kind of learn how it's impacting, you know, other areas of practice and emergency medicine and just really in a hospital setting. To recap for our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education by visiting elearning.ashp.org backslash podcast. Please note that credit for this podcast expires two years after the date this podcast is published. Finally, if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check the member-exclusive offerings on the ASHP website, including resource centers for ambulatory care, critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the preceptor toolkit and forums such as the ASHP Connect communities where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to ASHP Official through your favorite podcast provider, and we'll see you next time. Stephanie and Connor, thank you for the discussion today. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.